Amen. I hope that song for us is true. We do want to be in the presence of the Lord this morning. Amen. As Jared said, we'll be starting our series in 1 Timothy. I've labeled the series Fight the Good Fight, and I'll get into that in a moment, but I want to go back to last week in Ezra chapter 10. We said this year what our desire for the year 2019 is that we would set our hearts to three things. That we'd set our hearts to study the Word of God, to obey the Word of God, and to teach the Word of God. And so, as we come into 1 Timothy, I want us to know that the book of 1 Timothy is a pastoral letter to young Timothy about that idea. Timothy, you must know the Word of God, you must obey the Word of God, and you must teach the Word of God. And there's just one word I want you to highlight in your Bibles. It's found in chapter 1, verse 5. It's the word aim. You know, I was thinking about that word I was uh, studying this week, and this story came to mind that I heard several years ago. It's about one of the greatest shooters that America has ever seen. He was an Olympian. In 2014, Matt Edmonds was uh, in his final leg uh, of the 50-meter um, shot. The, the three-stance uh, shot is what it was called. And so all that Matt had to do was aim the gun at the target and just hit the target to win gold medal. He, he didn't have to get a bullseye. He didn't have to get several bullseyes. All that Matt had to do was aim at the at the target and hit anywhere on the target to get enough points that would put him to win the gold medal. And as Matt went into his stance and began to breathe and began to get ready for the shot, he uh, watched the other shooters take aim and shoot. And so he was trying to calm himself and collect himself. And uh, you can see the video on YouTube. He aims and he shoots. And then all of a sudden you see his face. Nothing shows up on the bullseye. Nothing at all. Now, this is a, an Olympian. It doesn't even hit outside of the target. Nothing on the target was hit by his bullet. And then what he discovered was this. He was in lane three and aimed at lane two. And you hear that story and we chuckle. And what happened to Matt that day is he went from first place all the way to eighth place and didn't even medal at all. And as I thought about that story, I thought about us, the Christian, the church. Are we taking aim at something and shooting at something completely different? See, that's what this whole Bible is about. This whole book is about is about what Jared read in that last verse in verse 10 and 11. Sound doctrine. That is what we must take our aim at. It's sound doctrine. And anything else out of sound doctrine is going to leave us high and dry. You see, my great fear for the American church is this. We are taking aim at how to be relevant. We're taking aim at how to be cool. We're taking aim how to fit in. We're taking aim at you fill in the blank. I often told people, I know how to grow a church. I know I, if you want to know how to grow a church, I know how to grow a church. I, it's, it's easy. Just be as much as the world as you want to be and teach as little as the word as you can teach. 
and you will grow the church. Now, you won't have very many godly people in our midst, but I could grow a church. We could pack this place out for service after service after service. That's easy to do. What is hard to do is to be faithful and preach and teach the Word of God. This does not grow numbers, but it grows people. And that is what is happening here in this, book, in this letter that Paul is writing to young Timothy. He tells him over and over again. Uh, he, he starts the letter off this way and he ends the letter off this way. He starts it off in verse 10. He's going to recap and says this in verse uh, chapter 1, verse, uh, verse 13 and 14. He says to young Timothy, wage a good warfare. He says this in chapter 6, verse 13, fight the good fight of the faith. So everything in this letter is about fighting the good fight of the faith or taking aim at something. You, you see a boxer when he takes aim, he, he's not just hoping for the best. He's aiming for the knockout punch right across the jaw. Now he's going to work you with some body shots and some body blows. But a good fighter is looking right around this region to knock you slap out. He's taking aim at something. A great basketball shooter is taking aim at the back of the rim. A great hockey player is taking aim at the back of the net. But I wonder, church, what are we taking aim at? Is it sound doctrine? Or is it our sound preferences? And that's what ha is happening here to the church. And so we'll start out in verse 1 and we'll go all the way to verse 11 today. But I want you as you hear these words to think, what am I in my life taking aim at today? And then what are we the church? Not the universal church, but we Pals Chapel. What are we taking aim at today? He says this, the greeting. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God and our Savior, of Christ Jesus, our hope, the greeting. There's three things I want to see in the greeting. The first one is this. Who is Paul? Who is this man that has any authority to write to young Timothy? Well, Paul was an apostle. He says this by the command of God or called by God over and over in the letters of Paul. He's going to tell the writers who he is, but not who he is alone, but who he is and who's called him, who called him. It's the command of God on his life to be an apostle. It is God who has set him apart, not himself. And so Paul, if you remember about Paul, Paul was a Jew. Paul hated the church. We see that in Acts. He hated the church. He was dragging church members and Christians in uh, to the streets and killing them by the droves. If you remember in Acts chapter uh, 13, I believe, is where his conversion happens. And Paul is going to go and kill uh, Christians on his road to Damascus. That's where he's going. And then we see God's glory show up. Jesus himself shows up and says to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And in that moment, there's this conversion that happens in Paul's heart. But we see that God, from the beginning of time, sought out to save Saul to become the greatest missionary the world has ever known. He's the greatest missionary our world has ever known, and in my opinion, will ever know. He's, and I, I'm not trying to dog Billy Graham. He was a great missionary that spread the gospel. But no one in the history of the church 
has had more power and influence put on them by God outside of Jesus than the Apostle Paul. We are here as a church because of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was given to the Gentiles. That's you and me. We are not Jewish. Unless you're Jewish, you are a Gentile. Paul's whole mission was to get the gospel of the glory of God to people like you and I, the Gentile. And we're here because of the Apostle Paul. And then he taught faithfully. Most of our rich theology, yes, it comes from Christ and Christ alone. Christ is the Word of God. But it is penned through the Apostle Paul. All of our church doctrine comes from the Apostle Paul. He was, in my opinion, a stud. He was amazing. So that is who's writing this letter to young Timothy. And he says this, to Timothy, my true child of the faith. And so we must ask the question, who is he writing to? He's writing to young Timothy. Many believe that Timothy was converted by the Apostle Paul on Paul's first missionary journey. If you look in the map section, you'll see that there's three main missionary journeys that the Apostle Paul went on. Many people believe that when Paul was going to Ephesus the first time, he stopped by um, Timothy's house, and that's where young Timothy as a teenager came to know Christ. And then it says that his mom and his grandmother began to teach him the Word of God, and Timothy, young Timothy became familiar with the Word of God and taught the Word of God and soaked in the Word of God. And it was on the second missionary journey that when Paul arrived back at young Timothy's house, that he invited young Timothy to join him on the rest of his journey. If you remember in the book of Acts, uh, it's Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas are on these missionaries. And then, you know, there's conflict that arises between Paul and Barnabas. And then they do the godly thing and they divide and conquer. And that left Paul with no one as his sidekick. And so he knew he needed to go with someone else to go on these missionary journeys. Just as we see in the Gospels that Jesus sent the, the, the apostles, the disciples out two by two. Paul knew he could not do these journeys alone. And so he invites young Timothy on this journey to spread the gospel to the Gentiles in the known world. If you look throughout the books and the letters that are written by the apostle Paul, you'll see over and over and over again that the word Timothy is in those letters. Many people believe that those where it says that he didn't write the letters, Personally, that young Timothy was the one pinning as Paul spoke out loud. Well, here's something else about Timothy. And I think this is where I really identify. I think if we're honest, we all identify with Timothy way more than we'll identify with Paul. Anyone in here like, I'm not Paul. Right? I'm not the Apostle Paul. But as I read who Timothy is, I'm like, man, I can. that's who I'm more like. We see in this text and in this book, that he was a young man. Many believe, many scholars believe he's about 30 years old at the time of this book. He, the Apostle Paul tells him in this book, don't let anyone look down on your youthfulness. So he's a young man. Not only was he a young man, but it says this in verse 7. We'll, we'll see in a moment, and we'll see throughout this letter that young Timothy was a timid man. Anyone timid in here? I'm the only one, okay. Uh, that's cool to be lonely. And we see throughout the books of Paul that Timothy was a very timid man. He would always shrink back, being scared. It says this about young Timothy. I believe that young Timothy was an anxious man. Not only timid, but anxious. 
I see that in this text in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and then again in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse uh, 10. He talks about uh, T- Timothy's stomach problem. Now, I don't know about you, but when I'm anxious, I have stomach issues. I guess I'm the only one again. All right. Again, it's good to be lonely in the pulpit. But he tells Paul tells young Timothy, hey, with your stomach issues or with your anxiety, drink a little bit of wine to cool your stomach down. And so here we see young Timothy, an anxious, timid man. But yet he's given this charge to fight the good fight. And so when we look at this text and we look at the the characters of this text, we most identify with Timothy, not the Apostle Paul. But the same charge that Paul gave to young Timothy, I believe he's given to us, the church. We must fight the good fight. We must take aim at sound doctrine. Which goes back to Ezra chapter 7. Do we study the Word of God? And this last week, have you taken the reading plan? Have you begun on your own just reading for five minutes a day through the Gospel of Matthews? Are you studying the Word of God? You see, you and I will not fight the good fight unless we know the Word of God. This is what gives us our aim. This is our target. So we must study the Word of God. We must fight the good fight of the faith. Because what's going to happen and what happens here in this letter is what will happen to so many of us. There will be people that come into this church to veer us off course of sound doctrine. That's what happened. That's what's happening in the church of Ephesus. That's who he's writing to. You see that in uh, verse uh, uh, 3. He says, stay, I urge you, I implore you, I beg you, I beseech you, I command you. Young Timothy, stay at the church of Ephesus. Because what's happening in the church will have long-lasting effects, not on just the church, but the city of Ephesus and throughout the world when we get away from sound doctrine. But before we get to that piece, he says this. He says to young Timothy, my child of the faith, he was a disciple or an apprentice of Paul. I told Jared this last night at dinner and uh, by God's grace and goodness, uh, another young man, he's not young anymore. Uh, when he came in with two kids, I'm like, man, that, that's not young Tom anymore. My friend Tom uh, is here. Myself, Tom and Jared would spend hours on a Friday studying the word of God, studying our hearts and being in community with, you, with each other. I, I told uh, Jared this last night, so many ways, Jared is like a young Timothy and there's a man in my life his name is Huli, who's in Kentucky. He discipled me, he trained me, he taught me the Word of God. So if you don't like who I am, just call Huli and uh, chastise him. I am who I am in the Word of God because of uh, Huli Goddard. So go and attack him, don't attack me. I'm just doing what was told and taught to me. And so if Jared's doing something wrong, come attack me, don't attack Jared. Uh, got one amen to this morning. But he says this as he begins the book. He lists three things, and these three things are unique to this book, to the pastoral letter. He says to Timothy, my child of the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, from Christ Jesus our Lord. He tells him grace, mercy, and peace. He's referring to this. Grace is the undeserved favor and love and forgiveness that frees us as sinners. 
He's reminding Timothy of the grace of God in his life. And then he says he reminds him of the mercy of God in his life. It frees us from the consequences or the penalty of sin. And the last is this. Those two things combine the grace and the mercy of God through the forgiveness of our son, through the resurrection, will bring us what? Peace. And so he's telling young Timothy before he gets into the letter, I imagine that Paul knows what he is about to write to Timothy. And I know that I believe that Timothy is very anxious when he gets this letter. He, he, Timothy's not a fool to what's going on in the church. And so he says on the outset, hey, young Timothy, don't forget the mercy and the grace of God in your life. And then as you go forward, have the peace of God in your life. And now he gives him the warning. He says this, I urge you, I beseech you, I implore you, I beg you, when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus. I just want to give a recap of the uh, the church of Ephesus. We just studied the church of Ephesus. Remember, he, the, the book or the letter to the Ephesians was to this church that Timothy's talking about. But you remember what it says in Revelation chapter 2 about this church. Of the seven churches that are written in uh, Revelation, the church of Ephesus has been mentioned. Of all the churches that can be mentioned, Jesus himself has written a, another letter to the church. If you'll turn there with me to Revelation chapter 2. He starts off in verse 2 talking about this church. He says, I know your works. I know your toil. I know your patience, endurance. I know how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves the apostles. Remember, he's writing this after this, these two books. He's saying, I know you've done the things that you were commanded to do in the letter of Timothy, and I know you've done what you need to do in the letter of Ephesians. How you do not grow weary. And then some striking words. Scary words. He says, I know what you've done in the past. But I also know what you've done in the past. He says this, but I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen and repent. And do the works you did at first. So we have to ask the question, what are the works that they did at first? It's found in Acts chapter 19. In Acts chapter 19, it says that the church in Ephesus would come together and they would divulge the practices that they had before. And they lived a life of repentance. But then if you just move one step further in chapter 20 is where Paul warns the church of Ephesus of what's about to come. Just four years before this letter in 1 Timothy was written, Paul the Apostle says this to the church in Acts chapter 20. He says, but I warn you, church, I warn you that there's going to be those who will come among you that are like wolves. That want to devour you. That want to lead you astray. So they had gotten the warning four years prior to what this letter was going to say. There has already been a warning and now... Paul tells Timothy again the warning to the church of Ephesus. 
Hey, there are wolves among you. That ought to be scary. He does not say there's wolves outside of you. He says there's wolves in your midst. I believe the greatest danger for the church and the American church is not the oppression outside of us, but the, it's the oppression and the attack inside of us. And it comes down to this. What do we take our aim at? See, well, who is he talking to? He's talking to the Sunday school teachers. He's talking to the elders. You'll see that in a moment. He's talking to those that lead the church. There's going to be elders among you. There's going to be wolves among you that are going to want to lead you astray. And he says here in the text, they are already leading you astray. He says, I warn you to remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain people or certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Doctrine is important. Doctrine, what we believe to be true about God, is the most important thing about the local church. Sound doctrine is important. The word sound in the text means this, to have a foundation. So you can have a beautiful house that on the outside looks great, and the beams look great, and the interior looks great. But if over time the, the, the foundation is not sound, what happens to the house? It crumbles and falls. So the most important thing that we do, listen to me loud and clear, it's not our music, but it's what we sing, not how we sing. I'll say it one more time. It's not how we sing, but it's what we sing. You see, Jared's not just picking out songs because he wants to tickle your ears and make it fancy and make it pretty. No, every song that we sing is sound doctrinally. You see, everything I teach has to be sound doctrine. Everything that your Sunday school teachers teach must be sound doctrine. That's what matters in the local church. That is what sets us apart from every other organization is our sound doctrine. So he warns them that there's certain people among you that are teaching things that are contrary to the right doctrine. Remember what the Apostle Paul says in another letter. He says to them, hey, if anyone comes, even angels or myself come and teach you any doctrine other than what I've already taught you, the true gospel, let it be a curse to him. There is a sound doctrine. There are not many sound doctrines. There's not many ways to Jesus. There is one way to Jesus. I got one, mm -hmm. like amen to that. There is one way. Jesus himself says, I am the way. He does not say I am a way. He says, I am the way. I am the truth and I am the life. You see, that is sound doctrine. He says, this is what they're teaching. This is what they're doing. This is the doctrine that they are teaching nor have they, they have devoted themselves to what myths and endless genealogies. Myths in the text has to do with this idea of fables. Like a fable, they're cute. The fables have some truth in them. Like when you hear a fairy tale or a fable, like there's 
some gray uh, silver lining in the fable, right? Like that's what draws us to them. Uh, my kids, don't judge me unless you need to. Uh, my kids and I have been watching a lot of Harry Potter lately. Well, that's a cute story. And it's, there's, it's lined with certain teachings. And we look at that. And we look at other fables like that. And we're drawn to fables. But that's not the truth. Harry Potter is not the truth. I'll go to other places. There is one truth. And what he's saying, there's people in your midst that are teaching fables. They sound really good. I'll say it out loud. I'll get in trouble for this one. Joel Olstein tells a lot of fables. He does not share the truth. Why is this church 50,000 people? Because he can tell great stories. There's other churches even in our community that do the same thing. We must be weary of them. This is the warning that the Apostle Paul is giving to Timothy, the pastor of the church of Ephesus. He goes on and says this. He says they're teaching these fables. They're teaching these endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than what? The stewardship of God. You know what the word stewardship of God in that text means? The plan of God. Do you know God has a plan? And it's not your best life now. I guarantee that. But God has a plan. The, the whole Bible, it could be summed up in this. This is the plan of redemption. From A to Z, from Genesis 1 all the re- way to Revelation, God has a plan to redeem mankind. And what has happened is these people have come in and are distorting the plan of God. See, everything in this book can be boiled down to these two things. For your good, but for His glory. This book is not written primarily about you. It's written for you, for His glory. That's why we must study the Word of God. The more you study the Word of God, I promise this, the more you will fall in love with the God of the Bible, not the God of your ideas. And the God of the Bible is way different than the God of my ideas. Why? Because I have these things called emotions and feelings that distort the reality of the truth. I really don't want to believe that God is a wrathful God, yet that's what it says. I don't want to believe that God uh, allows people to go to hell, but that's what the Word of God says. See, there's truth in here, and we must hold to the truth. And he says this, after saying that, he's saying certain persons are swerving. That word means to miss the mark. That means they've taken an aim and gone off. They are swerving from what? from the true faith. They have wandered away in vain discussions. Desire. I'll get back to chapter uh, verse 5. If you're wondering, why did you just skip over verse 5? I'm coming back to that, I promise. Because that's probably the most important part of this whole text. They've wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law, underline the word law in your Bible, uh, without understanding either 
what they are saying or the things that they're even talking about. Remember what it says in James chapter 3, verse 1. Many of you desire to be teachers, but you ought not to be a teacher because the teachers are going to be judged more strictly than those who aren't the teachers. I knew there would be one amen in there. And so he's saying to them, hey, hey, you the teacher, be, be cautious, be weary of teaching, teaching the law. He says, now we know this about the law. We know that the law is good if it, if it is useful to be lawful. Understand this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless, for the disobedient. And then he goes through the list. And then at the end, he says, if I missed anything, anything that's contrary to sound doctrine. So he, he says, OK, I might have missed some, but I'm not going to miss any more with this statement. If you look at the text even clearly as you study, what he does is um, the last few that he talks about, he ties back into the Old Testament, the law, the commands of God. And so he's saying to us, hey, the law is good. We must teach the law. If you've ever wondered, hey, why does Todd jump from New Testament to Old Testament in series? Because I believe that the law is important. The law is given to us by God. We must teach the law. We don't just have a God of the New Testament, not a God of the Old Testament. The Old Testament reveals to us the truth of who Jesus is through the New Testament. He says that himself. I haven't come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill the law. So we must know the law. And that's what they're getting away from is teaching the law. The great reformer says this. John Calvin himself says this about the law. I think it's so true. This is why we need the Old Testament. And we must study. And we must know. And we must hide the Old Testament just as much as the New Testament in our hearts. He says this about the law. The law condemns sinners, yet drives them to Christ. You see, the law is the thing that shows me, hey, there's the mark. There's the aim. That's what I'm aiming for, the law. Be perfect for He is perfect. That's what the law shows us. This is how to be perfect. And yet we see through the accomplishment of Jesus Christ, I can never fulfill the law. Therefore, I must have someone that can fulfill the law for me. That is Christ Jesus. But I need the law to show me what I'm aiming at. Not only does it condemn sinners, it warns evil doers. Uh, any amens to that? Like, hey, you do this, you're going to get killed. You do that, you're going to get killed. You do that, you chop your hand off. You do that, you get sent away from people. Like, he's warning evil people with the law. And lastly, the law is given to us by God to educate and exhort us, the believers. The law ought to be encouragement to us. So here's the deal with the law. There's one thing the law cannot do. It cannot save us. But what the law reveals to us is that we need a Savior. You see, when we begin to teach things that are contrary to the law, and we take aim at ideas and we take aim at things that sound good and we get away from teaching the law then we'll get away from needing a savior so you can go into a lot of churches and hear a lot of topical preaching and go and live your life that way 
And the amens that hey, you could leave here and go to another church and they're going to tell you, hey, this is what God says and how you ought to live your life. And you can go live your life that way. But living your life that way will not give you salvation. It will get, just give you a way to live life that way. But it does not offer salvation. You see what the law does. It says this is how you must live. And it reveals to us I cannot live that way. So it opens my eyes, my ears and my heart to say there must be something out there that can live that way because I can't live that way. And I must find him and he must find me and I must surrender my will and my life to him, the law giver and the law keeper. He goes on to say this. About the law. He ends it by saying this, whatever is contrary to sound doctrine. What is sound doctrine? It's the law. You begin to read this. And you begin to study this. And you do what Ezra says. You study it. You obey it. And you teach it. Remember what we said. The good hand of God will be on you. But here's the goal. He gives them a greeting. He gives them a warning. But he gives them a goal. This is our aim in sound doctrine. Don't miss it. In verse 5. The aim of our charge is what? He doesn't even say sound doctrine there. He doesn't say the Bible there. He doesn't say good teaching there. He says what? The aim of our charge is what? Love. What, Paul? Like, Paul, you've been talking to us this whole time about sound doctrine. Well, if you get sound doctrine, then you're going to get this, that God is love. And if you get God is love, then therefore you must love. He says this in John chapter 13, 35. By this, the world will know you. You are my disciples. By what? The way that you love one another. And so how are we to love? He gives us three things that love must look like. Love must be like this. From a pure heart. That is a heart washed and regenerated by the blood of Christ. This may sound odd when I say this. If you do not know Christ Jesus, you will never be able to love fully. I'm not saying you can't love at all. But if you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus, you will never know the full extent of love. Therefore, you can never give the full extent of love. And so we must love from a pure heart, a heart that has been regenerated by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and his power at the resurrection. Is your heart regenerated? Because you will not love if it's not. The second thing he tells us is this. We must love with a good conscience. You know, when we think of the word conscience, we think of this idea of the Holy Spirit in us. That's not what this text is talking about. Good conscience means this. It's the thing that puts us in relationship with other people. See, I have to have a conscience to know if I've harmed you. I have to have a conscience to know if I've done wrong to you. I have to have that conscience. And so what the Apostle Paul is saying to Timothy, hey, as you are doing sound doctrine and teaching sound doctrine, you must do sound doctrine with love with a good conscience. 
Which means you must do sound doctrines with good relationships. As the old um, people from Navigators say, I believe, they said this, people don't care what you know until they know that you care. See, if all that I do is come and beat you upside the head with sound doctrine, then you don't know that I care. Then why do you care about sound doctrine? I've learned that as a husband, not doing sound doctrine with a good conscience. I've had the truth with the way I've revealed the truth and taught the truth. And my own home has not always been with a good conscience. I've had an agenda rather than love. The last one he says is this. We must have a pure heart. We must have a good conscience. And we must have what? A sincere faith. Which means this. We must have a faith that is without pretense and that does not waver. You see, if we're going to fight the good fight, church, we must have sound doctrine. But our sound doctrine must be coated with love and a pure heart, with a good conscience, with a sincere faith. And so I ask this question. The first question I ask is this. Are we more like Matt Emmer? has taken aim at something and has hit nothing because we do not know sound doctrine. The second question I would pose to us is this. Do we coat our sound doctrine with a love for the world? You see, that's the charge that Paul gives young Timothy for the church of Ephesus. You see, young Timothy could have gone in there and he could have been a gunslinger and he could have flipped over tables and he could have chastised and he could have rebuked and he could have all that and all that would have been true. But he tells them to go in and confront with a sincere love. Is that true for us as we fight the good fight? Let us pray. God, I pray that we would take aim and our aim would always be sound doctrine. But what we aim with is a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith, which is love. You see, Jesus, you were the perfect model of this. You taught sound doctrine. You taught it with love. You say it this way. While we were yet sinners, you died for us. No greater love than this, that a man would lay down his life. So God, I pray as we start this series in 1 Timothy, and we look at what it means to fight the good fight, that everything that comes from here on in this text, and in this book, in this letter, we wouldn't forget. It's all about sound doctrine, coded with love. You are the perfect example of that for us, Christ Jesus. 
God, I pray if there's someone in here this morning that does not know you as their Savior, that they, they can't even fight the fight. They've been defeated already. But in you, in you, Christ Jesus, we have victory. And so, God, I pray that we wouldn't fight you, we'd surrender to you. And in surrendering to you, we would be able to fight the good fight of the faith. So lead us, God. Let us here at Powell's Chapel be known for love and known for truth. It is found only in you. I pray this in the mighty name of Christ Jesus, our Savior. Amen.